Well, I'm glad to be back. Appreciate Moy and Ethan preaching the last two Sundays. You're in good hands. Uh, three weeks ago, let's take us back to Nehemiah. Three weeks ago in Nehemiah 11, it was a record of the people who chose, or perhaps I should say were chosen, to take the hard road and repopulate this ghost town of Jerusalem. Today, we're going to see, we just got two more weeks in Nehemiah. Today, we're going to see the priests and Levites and those who returned, and he's going to give us another list of names, so you can check to make sure I'm saying them correctly. Also, we're going to see, this is the climax of the book, is, is uh, Nehemiah 12. They are back in the land. They've got a rebuilt temple, a rebuilt people due to the word of God being preached, and number three, a rebuilt wall. And so we're going to see a dedication take place of this wall. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said it's going to look like, the, uh, like a Jewish Disneyland parade. And so kind of get that in mind as we cover it. And really, it's the greatest day of the exiled community. God has given them joy. They're back in the land, and everything is all is right in the world, at least in this chapter. Well, it's, they have just great and wonderful joy exuding from them. They're so glad to be back. But it's worth mentioning, is there a difference between happiness and joy? That's something worth at least tackling because I, I often have heard this in the Christian life. Some of you may not have, but I had heard that, you know, happiness is, is superficial. It's a result of earthly circumstances. Whereas joy is not superficial. It's, the, it's uh, enduring and it's not uh, the result of earthly circumstances, no matter what the circumstances. And yet we always want to go back to what does the Bible say? Is that, is that actually true? And if it's not true, where do we get that idea from? Well, I would point out there's actually no distinctions in the Bible between joy and happiness, those the terminology. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, 13, God says, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. They're synonymous. Although different Hebrew terms oftentimes describing both, their, their meaning is the same. In the New Testament, where, where we have this Greek word makarios, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed can also be translated as happy. Well, certainly Jesus isn't talking about superficial happiness in Matthew 5. So there's no distinctions in the Bible, but and you go, well, maybe there is in the English language. Well, that's worth checking out. But what we find is the terms joy and happiness are always synonymous. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century will say, the happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. Joy, happiness, same thing. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century says, oh, cheerful, happy, joyous people, I wish there were more of you. Let the uppermost joy you have always be Jesus Christ himself. Despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. And now some of you are starting to scratch your head and go, wait a second, where am I getting that from? Well, it could be maybe Oswald Chambers. He wrote in his well-known classic devotional, My Upmost for His Highest, which I like. It's a good devotional. But he would often differentiate between the two. And yet, 
I'm realizing that I disagree. Uh, Randy Alcorn uh, writes, don't talk of joy as this unemotional, transcendent thing and happiness as this worldly thing. Because when we do that, we are pushing people who all seek happiness away from the gospel. Stay with me here. I think what we're gonna see is that God is the source of all happiness, even for the unbeliever. And you go, how can God be the source of his happiness? Well, I would say there's two big differences between a believer and an unbeliever in the area of happiness slash joy. First one is this. An unbeliever ultimately finds his joy in God's gifts, food, drink, really anything in all creation. Yet these gifts will one day be cut off from the unbeliever. His fun will end one day. And now some of you may push back and go, wait a second. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that uh, because there's a lot of bad things out there that the, the unbeliever enjoys. Is that part of God's creation? Well, we would say this, is that man actually creates nothing. Do you know that? We actually have never created anything ever. Only God is the creator. We take God's creation, and if we're doing wrong, we will twist it. And that's where sin comes into play. And we twist what God made good and right. And so man can certainly do that. Remember, comedy is a, is a God's gift, but we can twist it and we can make it crude. Uh, marital relations are a God's, is God's gift, but we take it outside of marriage, we twist it. God's perfect and good creation. Remember, God never says his creation is bad. He always pronounced it good. So an unbeliever, though, finds his, his joy in God's gifts. He's using God to get what he wants. Number two, an unbeliever cannot ultimately have spiritual joy, which is better than all the others. Psalm 1611, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. The psalmist can say in Psalm 32, 11, happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. You see, a believer finds his happiness in God. And since he has secured that happiness, when he enjoys God's gifts like food, drink, anything in all creation, he can have greater pleasure when he enjoys God's gifts than an unbeliever ever can. You know what that means, don't you? You ought to love Texas sunsets. Some of you enjoy Texas sunrises, others don't. But we love the creation because we can constantly see his handiwork. It's more beautiful than we could ever make ourselves. An unbeliever cannot see that. C.S. Lewis writes about this when he talks about first things and second things. First things being God, second things being God's gifts. And he says this, if you put the second things, meaning God's gifts, first, then you lose in many ways the value of those second things. But if you put the first things first, and the first thing is really God, then everything else falls in place. So just to be clear, we should enjoy God's good gifts. Certainly we should. And yet make sure that our ultimate happiness or joy is found in the Lord. That was a long introduction. We're gonna go straight into the text now. And I'm gonna bring that up at the very end because you're gonna see it again. This is the word of God. Chapter 12, verse one through nine these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Zeriah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, 
Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mahayim, Maadiah, Bilgah, Sha'amea, Jorib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. Stop there. Look up here. Jeshua is the first priest after the exile. Do you know what Nehemiah is doing? He's going back to Ezra 1, way back to Zerubbabel. Continuing on, verse 8. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. Here we have the list of priests back in the days of Zerubbabel. Why is he doing this? Have you wondered how many, how many uh, genealogies do we have? How many uh, numbers, names? This must be vitally important to God. So for us, instead of kind of poo-pooing it and going, that's eh, whatever, it's important to God. These people are worth studying. We're not gonna look at all of them today. We'll talk about a few, but it's important to God. He remembers people's names. He knows your name this morning. He knows the date of your birth. He knows the date of your death. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's got you this morning, okay? So it's also very important from the exile, they are reestablishing the worship of King David. That's what's taking place here. David's name is used six times in this passage. Continuing on, verse 10 and 11. And Jeshua was the, fun, was the father of Joachim, Joachim, the father of Eliashib. Context, Eliashib is priest of Nehemiah's time, 80 years after Zerubbabel. By the way, if you're new here, it's the first time to be here, I'm sorry. We're, it's a lot of inter, interesting information that you didn't get. But continuing on, and Eliashib, the father of Joida, Joida, the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan, the father of Jedua. Now, if you're a Jew of that time period, you go, who's Jadua? And you're wondering that as well, aren't you? Well, time frame. Nehemiah is 445 BC, before the time of Christ, when he was physically on the earth. Uh, but you've got Jadua. Jadua is from the 330s BC. So what's going on here? Well, the scribes are, is, are, have added the name Jadua, who lived 115 years into the future of when Nehemiah was here. And that is worth talking about for a moment. Uh, this is what many people call the silent years. God was never silent. But what they mean by that is there's no, there's no scriptural passages of that 400-year time period, but there is the historical documents that's worth studying. You see, by Jadua's time, Jerusalem was thriving 115 years after Nehemiah, it's the end of the Persian reign, and it's the beginning of, which one do you know? The Greeks. The Greeks now are conquering. And I have to tell you a little bit about this, because I just think it's so fascinating. In the 330s, we have the arrival of Alexander the Great, who was not Greek. He was Macedonian. There's a difference. But he consolidated the Greeks and Macedonians, and they con he conquered to the east. He conquered the city of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, then he conquered Gaza. Have you heard of that in the news lately? In southern Israel. But he skips Jerusalem. 
That's historical documentation. Why does he skip Jerusalem? I mean, consider this. You're Alexander the Great. Why would you skip the capital, uh, which is also a city thriving with a beautifully expensive golden temple? Why would you do that? Josephus writes about it in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. You see, during the reign of Tyre, or rather during the siege of Tyre, Alexander sends a message to the high priest, Jadua, who's also has the nickname Jadus. He could go by either. Uh, and he's asking him for men and supplies. Jadua denies his request and saying, I'm not gonna break my word and, and take up arms against Darius, who's king of Persia. Alexander, as you can imagine, was furious. At the same time, the leader of the Samaritans saw this as an opportunity to gain favor with Alexander. So he renounced Darius, the Persian, and he sent Samaritan troops to Alexander. Remember, Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. A year later, Alexander quickly defeats the coastal city of Gaza, and he sets his sights on the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus writes about it. Jadus, remember Jadus and Jadua are the same person. Jadus, the high priest, when he heard that, he was in agony and under terror as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians since the king was displeased at his disobedience. And therefore, he told the people to make supplications and join with him in offering a sacrifice to God to protect the nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon God warned him in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he, Jadus, should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates that the people should dress in white garments, but that he and the priest should meet the king in clothes proper to their order as priest, who uh, without the dread of any ill consequences. When Jadus understood that Alexander was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priest and the multitude of the citizens. This is called crazy. <laughs> Jadua, or Jadus, he throws open the gates. He tells the people of Jerusalem, all of you dressing in white, let me get the priest. He puts on his priestly garb and he's going out to meet Alexander's army along with the Samaritan forces that are now fighting with, uh, fighting with Alexander. When they encounter Alexander, Jadua uh, is dressed in his high priestly robes, a turban with a gold plate that says Yahweh on it, which is how the high priest would dress. Uh, Alexander then approached him by himself and Josephus picks up, saying he adored that name Yahweh and saluted the high priest. He explained that he had seen the high priest in a dream. And in the dream, the high priest assured Alexander he would be victorious over the Persian empire. Alexander was taken to Jerusalem where he offers a sacrifice to God at the temple. I have no idea what that would have looked like. Uh, according to the high priest's direction, uh, Josephus says, and says a scroll was then given to Alexander from the book of Daniel. Nice, you didn't know it, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> book of Daniel that showed him that Daniel declared the Greeks would destroy the Persians in Daniel 8. Alexander must have identified himself as the male goat in that story, and the Jews were granted the same rights under Alexander as they had under Persia. And Alexander just moves on to Egypt. Folks, that'll preach. Josephus wrote that. Now, keep in mind, some people don't like Josephus. Sometimes he exaggerates and things of this nature. But 
It's fascinating that Alexander the Great did not go after Jerusalem. That was insane. Of course he would have, and he didn't. And the historical documents show it to be as such. I just wanted to share that more than anything, just to see God's providence in that. Let's take a look now, verse 12 through 26. In the day, and in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, of Mariah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, of Jehonanan, of Maluki, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Genathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniam, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shemua, of Shemiah, Jehonathan, of Jorib, Mataniah, of Jediah, of Uzi, of Salai, of, Zach, of Kali, of Amok, of Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nathanael, of the days of Eliashib, Joida, uh, Johanan, of Anjadua. The Levites were recorded as heads of father's, father's houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of father's houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, and the priests of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the sons, son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks. According to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch, Madaniah, Bakbukia, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. Here's what they are there for. They are there to give praise and give thanks. We're calling this sermon Rejoicing, Thanksgiving, and Singing. And this is what we're going to see. Why are they giving thanks? Well, they're giving thanks for Nehemiah's role, the unity that they have, the safety from their enemies, the strength to build the wall. Remember who some of these wall builders were? Perfumers. These are not people that are good situated for building walls. And not only that, that God gave them the will to do it. Philippians 2.13, then he gives us the will and work before us. Let me tell you what, y'all, if there's something we can learn from these people, they gave thanks. They praised the God of their fathers, as we should as well. You see, believers, we're called to be thankful people. This is so <sighs> convicting. Three things we could certainly give thanks for. Number one is the word of God. Something we may not do enough, since we all have our own personal copy and several personal copies. Yet the Bible says in 119 verse 50, this is my comfort and my affliction, that you, your, your word gives me life. How does it give you life? Well, certainly the Holy Spirit, we have life, but not only that, it tells us don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Be faithful to your spouse. Uh, love God, love others. Folks, I know that sounds strange, but it actually gives life if you'd be willing to follow that. Benjamin Franklin, raised in an evangelical home, his sister wrote him as her whole life saying, please turn to Jesus. And he never did, as far as we know. But you know what he did say about Christianity? He said this, and I quote, the moral and religious system which Jesus Christ transmitted to us is the best the world has ever seen or can see. 
And you might say, well, he didn't believe. You're right, but looking from the outside in, he could still say if people would just obey the word of God, they wouldn't go to heaven, but their lives would be so much better. Gives life. Secondly, we certainly should give thanks to the Lord for his blessings. I mean, that goes without saying. We're adopted as children. We're God's, uh, we have God's righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, the fellowship we have in the body, like this morning, the eternal life that we have, uh, John 6, 47, he who believes, present tense, has eternal life and the hope that we have to come. And not only that, but giving God thanks for not just his word, his blessings, but also his decrees. That's Romans 5, 3 tells us that we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. Why would you rejoice in afflictions, disappointments, troubles? Because we know the end of the story. And we know Romans 8, 28, that some things work together. Thank you. Christians, where were y'all? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even our sin, yes, even our sin. And that's shocking to me. It doesn't mean we don't have a law of sowing and reaping still in effect, but even the sin will teach us more of Christ's mercy, grace. Now, shall we sin so that grace may increase? May it never be because the law of sowing and reaping is still in play. But we know that God will even use those things and can and does use those things in our lives to humble us. I'm living proof of that. Verse 27 through 30. And at the dedication, here we go, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmapheth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So here's we have the dedication. And some of you are going, I've never been to a dedication. If you have been married, you have been to a dedication. You, are, you see a couple dedicating their lives to one another. Two are becoming one. If you're a believer, you have gone to a dedication. And you say, I'm not married. Did you not trust in Christ for your salvation? That was a dedication. It was not public. It was private, perhaps. But you, by God's grace, you... Uh, got the heart taken out, heart of stone, and put in the heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. And you believed, and you trusted in Christ. So after this dedication, though, what's so interesting is Israel and Judah were both known for their idolatry, their Canaanite idolatry. God said, don't ever do it. If you do, I will spew you out of the land. And they, what? gave in quickly, and he spewed them out of the land. What's interesting, they never engage in Canaanite idolatry again. It's not in the text. We don't see it. Now, they still engage in idolatry, but it began to be self-righteousness in the time of Christ here on the earth, and that was perhaps the most nefarious form of idolatry. And um, we have here Levites. They're in charge of the worship. They purify themselves first, 
and then they led worship, how would you purify yourself if you're a Levite? Well, you'd wash yourself in your clothes. There was a ritual sprinkling, uh, a sin offering. You would fast. There was an uh, abstaining from, from marital duties. Um, and the Bible was just making it very clear. You want to lead in worship, you, you better, there should be a purification. Now, we know in the New Testament, as clear as it was in the Old Testament, perhaps maybe not as clear, but only the Holy Spirit is doing the purifying. But the sort of purification that they would do, that's what it would, um, that's what it looked like. So they purified themselves, then they purified the people, ritual sprinkling and a sin offering. And finally, they purified the gates and the wall. Does anybody have a question as to what that means? What would that even look like? Well, they would sprinkle the city gates and the wall with the blood of lambs. Why would they sprinkle the gates and the wall? That just seems like it's objects, it's not people. Well, remember, the walls are primarily rebuilt. They didn't come up with stones out of nowhere. They were stones that used to be there and it would knock down. And so they were rebuilding these walls. Who used to be on these walls? Babylonian soldiers, people that had died fighting, Gentiles, and so they needed to be cleaned. They needed to be set apart for God's service. Is there a application for us? I think so. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, agrees. He says, they devoted the city in a peculiar manner to God and to his honor and took possession of it for him and in his name. All our cities and all our houses must have quote, holiness to the Lord written upon them. I know I've mentioned this before and I don't think we should transcribe on all of our papers holiness to the Lord, but there should be a symbolic understanding going on. Any of you get a new job, new house, new car, new baby? I hope you set apart just a moment, Lord, I dedicate this to you. This one is yours. Now, some of you, that causes great fear because you're like, if I dedicate it to the Lord, the Lord might take him. Your view of God is so jacked up today. Let me tell you what. Don't you know God can take them at any moment now? He doesn't need for you to dedicate and then, ah, got him. <laughs> Please don't think that way. By us dedicating in our mind and praying about it, it causes us to think, I want you to set this one apart this house apart, this job apart for you, Lord, and your purposes, not mine. Your glory, not mine. Continuing on, now we get to see the parade. Verse 31 through 37. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshat. Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives. Shemaiah, Azrael, Melali, Gilali, Ma'ai, Matanel, Judah and Hanani with musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the priest, or rather scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Here's what you have. You have two great, and it says in the Hebrew, two great thanksgivings. 
Don't think Turkey. Two great choirs that are surrounding the city. One is going clockwise, the other going counterclockwise, and they're meeting each other. This first group are leaders of Judah. They're, they're traveling counterclockwise. You'd have three to four men on top of this wall, and they are walking and singing as they go. And it says they have great choirs. But once again, these are great thanksgivings. They are embodiments of the word thanksgiving. And what you have here, you go, why are they doing that? Well, this is an Old Testament action. When you walk around an object or you walk around a piece of land, what are you doing? You're claiming it. If I offer you an acre somewhere as if I have an acreage, an acreage, and you, you say, well, let me take a look at it first. I need to walk the property first. Well, in the Old Testament, you're just not walking to check out what the land or city is like. You're claiming it for the Lord. We see this in Genesis 13, where after Abraham told Lot, okay, our groups are too big. You, you pick the best of the land, and that's exactly what Lot does. And the very next passage in Genesis 13, God says, hey, walk the land. And what is he doing? He's saying, all that is yours. It will be yours. It will be your descendants, but you walk it. And that's what the people are doing. They're claiming this for the Lord. Notice the word David. The name David comes up again. Uh, he's the man of God. A man of God, is that phrase is normally reserved for a prophet in the Old Testament, like Elijah or Elisha. We know that David was a king. We know that he was also a prophet. He wrote out God's words in the Psalms, but he was also what? He was a musician and a warrior. Really, the guy was just incredibly gifted, uh, all from the Lord. And we see that he actually develops the music of the temple. So they are reestablishing temple worship again. And they're looking at David as the, the leader in this the one who did it at the beginning. It's worthwhile to at least mention a couple of characteristics of biblical worship. I think in our age where worship can look like uh, insanity in some places, it's worthwhile at least, even though there's differences of opinion on some of these things, a couple of things that are, I think, pretty clear. Number one is you definitely wanna sing lyrics that are biblically and theologically accurate. That's helpful. Um, John 4, 24, Jesus tells the woman at the, at the well, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Moy is great about this. When you come across lyrics that you go, that's not really biblical. I don't care how old the song is. There's some really doozies written from about 400 years ago. Um, we don't sing them. We wanna make sure and do that right. As a matter of fact, to give you an example, I think you've heard of the song In Christ Alone. One of our all-time favorites here as well as in American evangelicalism. Uh, Keith Getty and uh, his pal uh, Stuart Townend wrote it and they were approached by a congregation uh, that was, or a denomination that was more liberal and they liked the song but they didn't like this one line. The second verse, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, which is describing uh, the penal substitutionary atonement. The divine forgiveness must satisfy divine wrath against sin. As believers, we don't walk away from that. We go, it's true. It's hard, but it's true. And it's right. But this denomination said, can we, can we change the, the words? 
So, so it reads like this, uh, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And so proud of those two authors of that song, and they said, no, no. Why? Because it's important to note that God's wrath was satisfied. And if we start to take that one out, guess which one is next? Take your guess. Anything that doesn't line up with my view of my God instead of lining up with what the Bible says about God. Another aspect about biblical worship, instruments that glorify God. Now, there's differences of opinion on instruments of worship. I think it's worthwhile to mention my opinion because I think it lines up with Scripture. I think all instruments can glorify God. Uh, Psalm 150, you should read uh, on your own. One of the commentators writes, there are at least 22 different musical instruments mentioned in the Bible, including the harp, the lyre, which is the ancient guitar, basically, uh, horns, trumpets, flutes, tambourines, drums, cymbals, moi, cymbals. The Levites in particular were, were appointed for the worship leaders, and that's what they do. I could say a lot more about that, but we'll keep going. Verse 38 through 43, we see the other choirs coming clockwise. They gave thanks, so they went to the north, and I followed them, so this is Nehemiah's group, I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the, uh, of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah, by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who stood thanks, uh, giving thanks, stood in the house of God. So they're at the temple. And I and half the officials with me, and the priest Elikim, Maasiah, Minimim, Micaiah, uh, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemiah, El Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leaders. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So here they offer sacrifices and we're gonna note their joy in just a moment. How do we offer sacrifices? I think too often times we study the sacrifices of the Old Testament and we go, well, that, that, didn't, that didn't apply to me. Let's get back to the new. No, there's applications for us in the New Testament. Is there not? Certainly there is. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for such sacrifices God is pleased. That means it's gonna cost you something as you praise God and you share and you do good. Um, and that's what these people are doing. And that's what we're called to do as well. Note, God had given them joy. The joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now, I'm looking at a group out here, and I'm seeing different temperaments. Some of y'all are more happy people, naturally. Others are more, hmm, realistic. Is that the term we like to use? Uh, you just, you know, you're not bouncing off the ceiling. Um, let me tell you what. We need to keep those in, in check. God has given us different temperaments. 
Some of us have had some tremendous trials in life that others have not. So let's not be so quick to judge those that are morose or saddened. But the fact is, is that God tells us to pray about all things. And God has given these people great joy. And it's worthwhile to take these passages and say, Lord, if you gave those people great joy and they're still underneath the thumb of Persia and they're slaves to Persia and they've, they've grown up learning Babylonian and now they're in Judah, they don't even know the language and they're joyful people. It's worthwhile to pray the Lord would give you joy. It really is. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. So you have it in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, according to Romans 8, lives in you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm actually encouraging you to pray about it. God, give me a, give me a joy I do not have. He loves those prayers. Children begging their dad for help. Finally, verse 44 through 47, and on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. How are they concluding this parade? They are giving uh, Giving cheerfully, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? Cheerful giver. It's kind of a bad story, I'll tell you. Harry Ironside told this story in Scotland at the offering time. We don't have, they didn't have boxes in back. The ushers, um, they would uh, carry uh, basically a long pole and they would pass it down. <laughs> And people would give that way. Well, an old Scotsman accidentally dropped in a gold sovereign um, in the collection bag, but he meant only to put a shilling. As soon as he realized his mistake, he tried to retrieve his sovereign. But the usher pulled the bag back and said, nah, once in, always in. The old man said, oh, well, I'll get credit for it in glory. And the usher replied, nah, you'll get credit for the shilling. <laughs> In verse 45, where you see Nehemiah is gonna use David, he's gonna be his example for, the, for them to follow. A man after God's own heart, there's many reasons why David could have been called that, but perhaps the reason why in this passage is he's a worshiper of God. And he, Nehemiah is gonna look to David, that's the guy that God used, by his spirit to give us our worship and we are reestablishing his worship today. It was a glorious time. In conclusion, how do you handle this rejoicing, thanksgiving, and singing? Let me just be clear. Believer or unbeliever alike, all people desire happiness or joy, same thing. But you desire it, I want it too. So the question to ask ourselves is where are you seeking your happiness 
or joy. Philippians 3.1, Paul can say by inspiration of the Spirit, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. I've mentioned this before. It is incredibly unsafe, yea, dangerous to find our joy in God's creation instead of the creator. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the God's good gifts, but ultimately it's got to be in the one who gives them, right? And it's just, and the reason why it's not safe is because you might as well bank on something that's eternal because anything that you find joy in God's creation, it has, a, it has an expiration date. Your looks, your athleticism, your academic abilities, your money, all these things fly away. And some people and the older, older folks in this room are going, amen. George Mueller is a guy worth thinking about, worth emulating really here. He was a German evangelist, founder of orphanages in England in the 1800s, and he would write about being happy in the Lord. And actually, he considered that his first priority every day. He says this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how much or how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. And I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God to meditation on it. What's he saying? It sounds like the prayer of a narcissist. No, it's not. He's not saying, I just need to wake up and be happy in my gifts. No, no, I wanna be happy in the Lord. And as we find our happiness in the Lord, he gives us ways to serve him and ways to glorify him but let's not get the cart before the horse. I wanna find my joy in the Lord. Do you? Now you say amen as if you agree with me. And I say it as if I actually do this. But this is something I have to work on. But ultimately, you know who gives joy? The same one that, that tells us to be joyful. Let's see, the gift of the Spirit, our love, joy. It's right there. And as you find yourself in the joy in the Lord, you can only give him thanks for it because he's the one who brought it about in you. If you're an unbeliever today, I'll tell you this quickly. Your time is running out. You see, you find yourself happy, but it's not in the Lord. It's in the Lord's gifts. Your time is running out. There's a time coming where God will cut the string and you're done. And you will never experience any of God's good gifts ever again. So my encouragement to you is come to the Savior. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Please, I beg of you, because there's salvation and no one else. Your sin is gonna one day be paid for in hell. Come to Christ today, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's calling you. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. And we just pray that you would help us, Lord, to live the life that you called us to. I am so not joyful, not happy on so many days. And I confess that. I pray that you would help us, Lord, only in Christ is there found true happiness and not in the things of this world. We are passing so fast today. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who does not yet know Jesus as Savior. Would you grant them that? 
Would you help them to believe? Only you can do that, Lord. We thank you for it. In your son's name we pray, amen.